Good morning, Grace. Turn to Genesis 42, 43. Uh, welcome this morning. Uh, I know a, a lot of you, but uh, if you've never met me, <laughs> if you're new to Grace, my name is Eric Twisselman. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, it's a privilege to come before you and, and uh, unpack this passage that we have. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's a huge passage, and I was just telling Kenny at the, at the break from the last service, I'm, I'm not surprised anymore, but I continue to marvel at uh, the fact that you always have to trim stuff in a sermon. You always have to pull lots of things out that you would maybe like to say, um, but I'm always, uh, I, I marvel at just how wonderfully God orchestrates this whole worship service and he <laughs> gives uh, servants like Kenny uh, and Walt uh, just the right scripture and the right uh, songs with the right lyrics uh, to cover everything that I'm missing. So um, praise God for his sovereignty in that. For the last uh, well, a long time we've been in Genesis, and uh, for the last four weeks, um, the story of Joseph, which is really a, a, a subset of the, the story of Jacob, has been building to a great climax. And uh, to, just to uh, give us context as we dive into today's passage, uh, we've got Joseph, the favorite of uh, Jacob's 12 sons, the sons of Israel, sold as a slave by his jealous half-brothers back there in uh, chapter 37, and then uh, imprisoned under false charges by his master and master's wife. But now he's been exalted to being the second most powerful man in Egypt because God gave him the ability to predict and interpret dreams, the dreams of Pharaoh, to show what would happen in the near and more distant future, that there would be plenty followed by famine. And as we approach this text, the years of plenty have just flown by as predicted, and now we are into a famine. And Joseph is in charge of distributing the food that he so wisely stored up as he had recommended and as he had predicted. So let's start off, we're gonna jump down a little bit in the passage and uh, we're not gonna be able to read the entire passage, obviously there's about 70 some verses, so we're gonna sort of helicopter through it as we go, and just land in different places. Um, We're gonna start verse six of chapter 42. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing story of your grace and of your redemption. We thank you for including it in Genesis. 
We thank you that it is part of our story as well. I pray that you would help us all to see all the wonderful ways in which your hand was at work then and continues to be at work today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to go back to a question that Kip Docterman asked us when he preached from Genesis 37 when Joseph was first sold into slavery by his brothers. He asked the following question. Would you want to see your abusers saved? Let's really press that question in light of this passage we just opened with. Because now the shoe's on the other foot. And recall that the hatred that drove Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery was provoked by this dream, a series of dreams that Joseph had that one day they would all bow down to him. And here they are, bowing down. So what if you could watch your oppressors grovel at your feet? What if you had the power to hold them hostage? What if you had the authority to withhold sustenance from them or torment them psychologically just for the sheer pleasure of revenge? What if you could have them executed with a word? This would appear to be Joseph's dream come true. And if we were in his shoes, it might be our dream come true. It looks like Joseph's comeuppance is about to hit its peak. And it is, but just not in the way we expect. As Kenny preached, God does the unexpected. It's certainly not going to shake out the way Alexander Dumas would have written it in novel form, Count of Monte Cristo, and it's certainly not uh, the way Hollywood would render it. Because as many of us already know, this is not a story of revenge. But it is a story of reckoning. And today's passage, 42 and 43, records a series of tests that Joseph devises against his brothers ultimately for the sake of their repentance, for their reconciliation, and for the redemption of the family. But first, he accuses them of being spies. He does need to put them in the hot seat, doesn't he? And they reply, no, we're honest men. (laughs) Isn't that rich? To Joseph and to the person reading this passage thus far, we can see through that as far as either of us know, these are not honest men as they continue to maintain several times. No, these are sons of cheater. Their father Jacob and the family resemblance is striking. And so he tests them further, all right? He puts them in prison on hold for three days. And then he requires one of them to remain in Egypt 
as hostage, as leverage to get them to bring Benjamin, their youngest son, back. Benjamin, whom their father has kept back for fear of his safety. And then he does a really interesting thing to test them. It's not gonna seem like a test at first, but we'll get to that later. He puts their money back in their sacks. And through these tests, we're going to see that Joseph is really asking them at least the following kinds of questions. Are you really as honest as you keep saying you are, or do you have something to hide from me? Do you really understand the suffering that you caused our father and me when you did what you did? How have you been treating my brother Benjamin in my absence? Are you willing to come back for one of your own or just abandon him to Egypt like you did me? Will you protect your younger brother and bring him back alive to our father this time? And how far will you go to do it? These are the kinds of probing questions that Joseph wants his brothers to feel the weight of. And so as we go through this passage, I want us to see the details, but I also want us to see the big picture. We're gonna be reminded of three amazing truths through chapters 42 and 43. First of all, big picture. Number one, God is redeeming a people for himself. God is redeeming a people for himself. Number two, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. As it says in Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And number three, if we are to live and not die, we too need a substitute. If we are to live and not die, we need a substitute. So let's look at these in turn as we, as we kind of uh, bounce through the passage. Number one, biggest picture, God is at work. He is redeeming a people for himself. We have to see this uh, as we go through Genesis. We have to remind ourselves of this because Genesis is the opening overture in the great story of the Bible. And that is the message of the Bible that since the fall, since man blew it, God has been redeeming mankind. He's been at work. And we saw this promised in the seed of the woman and we've seen that promise become sharper and sharper. We see his covenant with Abraham to create a people through whom all nations would be blessed. But of course, lately, we've seen Abraham's line go on every which way. Abraham's descendants seem bent on throwing God's plans to the wayside. And it begs the question, whom will God choose in this generation? And who will be excluded from the promises, from the covenant blessings. Think of the casualties we've already encountered along the way. Ishmael, 
never part of it to begin with because it wasn't the child of promise. Esau, Onan, heck, Judah's family is not looking good at this moment and neither is Reuben's or any of Joseph's brothers for that matter. Is that what God's doing? Is he winnowing these guys out as he has so many others? So it's at this point we're reminded that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And we have to remember that God's covenant is a covenant of grace and faith. That is how he saved Abraham, that is how he saved Isaac, and that's how he saves everyone. We are always and everywhere saved through faith. So the people of God are characterized by their faith. And in the broader context, we've already seen this at work in Joseph. We've seen Joseph's faith on display when he interprets Pharaoh's dream, giving God the glory for it. And we've also seen his statement of faith previewed as, as sort of the banner of this, this uh, subsection when he declares what you meant for evil, God meant it for good, and that is the climax to which this story is headed. And we also see Joseph's faith in our passage this morning. Look at chapter 42, verse 18, a little further down. This is right after he has released his brothers after a three-day hold, and he says, do this and you will live, for I fear God if you are honest men. Notice that phrase there, for I fear God. It is because I fear God that you are going to get a second chance, a chance to prove your honesty, a chance to prove your integrity. Maybe those three days had allowed Joseph to seek and pray to the Lord to gain wisdom and grace We're not sure. Uh, The three days certainly were, I think, for the benefit of his brothers to maybe sit and think about what they had done. What better place but an Egyptian prison to consider what they had done to their brother. But it's by faith that Joseph allows himself to be God's instrument to bring his brothers back into right relationship with one another and with their father and ultimately back into the covenant relationship they have with God to remind them of that. As Alan Ross puts it, Joseph's actions awaken their guilty consciences. They need to be awoken because their eventual restoration depends on the fruit of repentance. So that brings us to point number two. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and we see God's kindness manifested through his faithful servant, his instrument, Joseph. Last week, Randy said, Joseph looks less like us and more like Jesus. And I agree. Now, Of course, Joseph at first speaks harshly to them, puts them in prison, but man, did they deserve it. In fact, they deserved far worse. And so what we see here is justice mixed with mercy. He changes the terms of their probation. Notice that at first he had said that 
only one of them would be allowed to go back. He was going to keep nine and send just one back to fetch their brother. But he changes his mind. Let's look at some of the ways throughout this entire passage that Joseph shows them great kindness, all with the purpose of awakening their consciences and bringing them to restoration. He allows uh, them to leave just one of their own behind, Simeon. And if you think about it, that was for the sake of his father and for their families because one guy couldn't have carried that much grain for that, much, for that many people. And so that too was a mercy. Not only that, he fills their sacks to full. Some of us might have been tempted to fill them with sand until about that much top it off with a little bit of grain, but no, he fills them and he gives them provisions for the journey. So they wouldn't have to eat out of those sacks, he gives them traveling food. Later, oh, and then he returns their money. He returns their money as if to say, you don't owe me anything. And later when they return with Benjamin and they try to pay him back, they're told by the steward that payment has been received and that their God and the God of their father has put treasure in their sacks. And finally, Joseph holds a feast, not just for Benjamin, but for all of his brothers, even those who oppressed him, who rejected him, and would have killed him. So we see God's kindness on display throughout these chapters, but we also see the fruit of repentance beginning in this clan of half-brothers. And this is important. We need to see the collectiveness of their repentance because just as the sons of Israel had sinned together in conspiring to sell one of their own, they must be brought to repentance together. Look at uh, chapter 42, verses uh, 21 through 23. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they didn't know that Joseph could understand them. Here we hear their guilt, their consciences being stung. And later on in verse 28, as they're on their way home, they attributed this to the work of God. Faith is starting to spark. Look at what they say when they discover that their money has been placed back in their sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, this might sound strange because this seems like favor, right? It it would appear to us as favor and it is, 
But think about how these brothers would have interpreted it. They have just been accused of being spies. You've come to uncover the nakedness of the land. This is a frame. This is a setup. This guy is out to get us. But bigger than that, God is out to get us. It's God who is doing this. And God would be just, would he not? It would be just. And they recognize that. Not only do we see collectively beginnings of repentance, we also see it in particular. We see it in two particular brothers here. Reuben and Judah. And how fitting because these are the two older brothers who took the lead in their own ways uh, in the original sale of Joseph. Look in uh, verse 36 here. It's triggered by what Jacob says after they've returned. He says, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin? Just sidebar. This is the one place where we get an inclination, an, uh, an, an an implication that Jacob knows. Jacob knows that something shady has happened. He blames his sons for what happened to Joseph. Notice how he just lumped that in there with Simeon. But this triggers the response by Reuben, who says in verse 37, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put his life in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben, no doubt, felt tremendous guilt that he hadn't done more, that he hadn't been able to get there in time to rescue him from the pit before his brothers sold him. So we see his conscience coming to life. But of course, Jacob rebuffs this, and it takes him about a year and a half. More hardship, hunger, for him to finally say, eh, how about we go back to Egypt, guys, boys? Why don't you go back to Egypt? As if it's just, yeah, run to the supermarket. And this time it's Judah who reminds him of the terms and conditions that Joseph had laid down for them. And of course, Jacob wants to dig in, but listen to what Judah says, chapter 43, looking at verse eight and 10, and Judah said to Israel his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. He's repeating Joseph's own words. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If, you do not, if, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And then he kind of throws in the jab. Look, we could have been there back and tw- twice probably. Pointing out that, look, you're clutching to Benjamin here. He might die anyway, along with the rest of us. 
And so finally, we see perhaps even repentance on the part of Jacob, or at least a greater turning towards faith. He has jeopardized the family's welfare because he is clutching at his youngest brother, or excuse me, his youngest son, the brother of the son he lost. And so he says in 43.14, he finally comes to terms with it and he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He has finally resigned himself to the will of God in faith. And so he sends Benjamin, along with some gifts, some little delicacies from the land, not much, and he sends them double money to return the money that was returned to them and also to pay for another round of food. And that brings us to our third point, third major thematic idea that in order to live and not die, they need a substitute. And as we're going to see, this points us to the truth about us too. If we are to live and not die, we need a substitute. But let's start in the text, shall we? We need to ask the question, why, why Simeon? That, that detail wasn't necessary. Why, why was Simeon the one who was, as it says, seized? He didn't volunteer. He was seized. Why Simeon? Well, perhaps for a number of reasons. First, it would have been most appropriate in a situation like this for the eldest son to be the representative uh, as, as the representative hostage, as the caretaker of the family. However, Joseph, remember, has just overheard his brothers talking about this, and maybe he is hearing for the first time his brother Reuben's regret and of his plan to maybe save him. It's not, it's, it's not certain. But who's the next oldest? Simeon. Another possibility comes from the fact that Simeon was one of two brothers mentioned later on in the, in the, the blessings of, you know, when, when uh, Israel is dying, and he's lumped together with his brother Levi. And why? Because they were men of violence. Remember, it was they who had avenged their sister Dinah's rape and slaughtered the Shechemites with just ruthless abandon. There are extra-biblical rabbinic traditions that also hold that Simeon was uh, perhaps the strongest of the brothers. He had this almost legendary strength, Samson-like. And he was the most violent, and many of those traditions have him being the one who first suggested, let's kill him. And the one who actually physically pushed him into the pit. So Simeon would make sense on all of those levels. And there's one more that we can possibly see. And only Joseph would have seen it. Simeon is the second born of the first wife. 
and it's to retrieve Benjamin, the secondborn of the second wife. Secondborn for secondborn. We see a wise justice at work here. But why does Joseph want Benjamin to come back? That's another important question. Why, why send for Benjamin? Look at things from Joseph's perspective, who's been in Egypt all this time. With Joseph believed to be dead by their father, Benjamin would have taken his place as Israel's most favored son because he was the son of the favored wife, the son of the wife who died in childbirth, bearing him. And the other interesting thing about Benjamin, of all of the brothers, he is the only one who was named by his father. All of the other brothers named by their mothers. In fact, Benjamin does get a name from his mother as she's dying, Ben-Ani, which means son of my sorrow. Not a good name. We're gonna strike that one. We're gonna give you a better name. And his father steps in and says, you will be called son of my right hand. Now, if you think a multicolored coat could provoke envy in these guys, how about a name like son of my right hand? And he's the only one left as Rachel's progeny. And Joseph would have known this. And so he would want assurance after all of these years from these self-proclaimed honest men that Benjamin was actually still alive. That they hadn't done to him what they had earlier done to Joseph. He wants to know if these jealous, conniving brothers have perhaps started to make things right. So we see the wisdom of God at work through Joseph. Part of the restitution for the sons of Israel was that they had to work together to ensure the safety rather than the demise of the youngest favored brother. How fitting as an exchange for what they had done. And so it's no wonder then that in 4329, when Benjamin arrives, Joseph weeps. Let's look there. 4329, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And he hurries out, and it's the second time he's wept. The first time he just kind of turned aside. This time he has to leave the room. He's gonna weep one more time and it's gonna be even worse. That's where we're headed next week. Now, this is kindled by Benjamin. It says the warmth for Benjamin. He greets his brothers. Hey, how are you doing? Are you, are you guys well? Yeah, okay, good. Is my father still alive? Yes, he's well. Great. 
So we see this great kinship. Now, of course, the brothers, for all of their starting to show repentance and and maybe contrition and all of that, they're still not quite there. Because notice when they come in, they're told that they are going to eat lunch with Joseph. And immediately, they're suspicious. Notice what it says a little further up. He says, oh, this is it. This is is the setup, isn't it? We're going to go into his house, and they're going to assault us and fall upon us to make servants and seize our donkeys. That's what this is all about. What? Now, Professor Ken Way of Old Testament at Biola University has made an intensive study of the donkey. And he tells me that the donkey was in fact the Cadillac of the Near East at this time. So there might have been something to that. But really, come on. A guy of Joseph's power and influence, he doesn't need to snatch your donkeys. This elaborate ruse. Yes, one of you stay hostage. Bring back the younger one. Why? For your donkeys. They still, for for all of the steps that they've taken, they still don't see the big picture, right? That there is a greater purpose to all this, and praise God there was. And so they're invited in, not just Benjamin, but the brothers are invited in for a meal and the steward says, no, 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 I don't need your money. That's when they try to give the, the double money back. It's like, hey, uh, we, we had this in our, and, and, and we really, we're not thieves, we're not, we're not. And the steward, no doubt, repeating the words of Joseph, because look at the covenant language he uses. He says, your God and the God of your father. An Egyptian wouldn't have come up with that, I don't think. Has put treasure in your sacks. I've received your money. We're square. And so they come and they feast. But it turns out there might be another test here. Because look at the end of chapter 43. He seats them and he arranges them according to birthright. All 10 of them. Excuse me, 11 of them. As if to say, I know the pecking order. And they're looking around going, I don't know if I had name cards on the, you know, I don't know how he did it, but. And then, in front of all of them, he gives Benjamin five times the amount of food. What could be more conspicuous? And one commentator believes that this is another test that Joseph is applying to his brothers. And the test is this. After all these years, are those old flames of jealousy going to be rekindled? We picture Joseph looking at the faces of these brothers as Benjamin gets helping after helping. Are they gonna betray jealousy, envy, 
perhaps even a murderous look, looks that he had seen from them so many years before. But then it says they drank and were merry with him. And that's where our passage ends today. Leaves us feeling a little ambivalent, a little unsteady, a little uncertain. Here they are eating and drinking and being merry, literally getting drunk together. But they do not yet realize who holds them in his power. They do not know at whose table they are really feasting. And as we leave the story, we ought to feel this tension. If we're reading this for the first time, is Joseph deceiving them in order to take the ultimate vengeance? Is this an end Dante's kind of ending? Is he merely fattening them for the slaughter? In the morning, will they face mercy or judgment? Next week, we're gonna see Joseph pulls out all the stops with one last test. It's a doozy. Well, what does this have for us today? We've seen that God has been and continues to redeem a people for himself, a people who walk by faith in God's promises. We see a people who have experienced the kindness of God that leads to repentance, a kindness that sometimes feels cruel, but it is for a greater good because it is all to get us to put our faith in his perfect substitute, the son of his right hand our Lord Jesus Christ, who was a brother to us in our humanity and yet in whom dwelt all the fullness of Godhood, the perfect substitute, both God and man, to cancel an eternal debt. Like Joseph's brothers, we were enemies, we were rebels, we were hostile in our minds, but now we have been brought to his table We have a God who mercifully gives second chances. I know I have gotten countless second chances and I know you have too. What will we do with it? But unlike Joseph in these chapters, God has disclosed to us his son and God has sent Jesus as a ransom so no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. I don't care how heinous your past is, no matter how you've hurt others, and no matter what they've done to you, all can be redeemed. So some questions to ponder. We might be in different places this morning, but maybe to think about in the quietness of your heart, or maybe even in fellowship, grace groups or or small groups with your friendships. If you're a believer, what has God been patiently and kindly calling you to repent of, perhaps for a long time, perhaps for years. Pride, greed, dishonesty, covetousness, anger, sexual immorality, lust, idolatry. And what hard things is he asking of you 
to bring that repentance to completion. If you're not a believer, if you're new with us, uh, never been to church, don't know much about Christianity, or maybe maybe you've been immersed in Christian culture for a long time, don't continue in unbelief. We quoted Romans 2, 4. I want to go there real quick and read the fuller context. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God has revealed himself in Christ. He's made him clear to you. He's made him known. For it is Christ who has made you. And in him we live and move and have our being. It is Christ who has heaped blessings on you without payment. It is Christ who has redeemed your life from the pit. It is Christ who was cut off from his brothers for your sake. It is Christ who has exchanged his life for yours and not just for yours but those of the entire world as a ransom for many through the reckoning of his own blood on the cross. And it is Christ who will bring many sons and daughters to glory to feed at his table. Will you turn to him in repentance? Will you fall at his feet in worship or will you merely feast and make merry with the blessings from his table even among his people doing the church thing and yet not recognize him for who he is? Or will you turn to him and beg his forgiveness because he stands ready to forgive And on that final day when Christ is revealed from heaven, he will appear to you as your savior and not as your judge. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance and if the kindness of Christ does not lead you to repentance, nothing will. But if you hunger for righteousness, then turn to Christ, the righteous one, and you will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, may we turn to your son Jesus. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness, not just in this life, but in the life to come. We worship him. Lord, help our faith. We know it is weak, but you are great. You are strong. Lord, feed us through your word, by your spirit. pray these things in Christ's name, amen. As Kenny comes up to lead us in one last song, there will be prayer team members up. I would love to talk with you if you would like to talk further about some of these things. If, if you have not yet trusted Christ, I would love to talk to you. Um, but any of our prayer team members would also love to have that conversation or pray with you about what uh, the Lord is doing in your heart.